Let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. We're continuing our series through the book of Acts. And this morning we find ourselves in verses 42 uh, through 47 of Acts chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, uh, there may be a, a paper Bible in one of the chairs in front of you. I remember uh, being new to church, new to Bible studies, new to uh, Christianity and not knowing how to pray. And I was just telling our small group prayer back there um, in 1991, right before I became a Christian, uh, the Gulf War was happening and I had no idea how to pray and I had no idea deal with the magic hand squeeze meant, you know, when it goes around a circle that, that you're supposed to pray. So the guy kept gripping my hand more and more. And finally, I just, I just didn't know what to say. So I just said, uh, peace in the Middle East. And I don't, I, it was the worst prayer ever, I'm convinced. And uh, my friend Tony still gives me a hard time about that. Um, uh, every once in a while. So it was one of my awkward moments, but an equally awkward moment. Um, it was me not knowing where to find things in the Bible. And, uh, and so um, each week when we gather together, uh, I want to give plenty of time for you. If you're new to scripture, if you're new to some of these sort of rhythms that we do every week, I want to give you time to locate the passage. And I also just want to let you know that this is the time um, where every week we come together and focus on one passage of scripture. And um, as uh, Ezra taught in the book of Ezra that the, the, the teachers would gather groups and would give the, the plain sense of the word. Uh, it's my job not to give you um, an inspirational message. I'm not trying to give you goosebumps. I'm not trying to tell stories that give you chills or make you cry or anything like that. My only role is to tell you what the Holy Spirit spoke through this passage to its original hearers and to help you make some application to your life today. And uh, so that's my role as the uh, pastor to shepherd you through the Word of God. And so this morning our focal passage is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Let's read that here. You listen as, yeah, page 531. Thank you, Charles. 531 in the gray Bible uh, under the seat in front of you. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." Well, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, uh, represent for us a, uh, a summary passage. Poor girl, she just doesn't want doesn't to hear me speak. I get it. I feel the same way sometimes. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And thank you for not amening that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> In this passage, in these verses, we have just a summary statement. Um, in context, we understand that the Holy Spirit has just um, 
been poured out on the disciples, 120 disciples and 12 apostles in the upper room. And as a result of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit coming to rest on the disciples, 120 of them, as they dispersed onto the temple grounds, uh, crowds were gathered, thousands and thousands of people. And Peter, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, spontaneously preaches a message. And at the end of that, right before chapter uh, 2, verse 42, um, we read in verse 41, so those who responded to that sermon were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 new believers were added to the church on that very first morning. You know, this was 9 a.m. or so that this uh, sermon went out for Peter and that so many people responded. Imagine 3,000 people giving their life to Christ in a morning service. This past week, we had a mission trip uh, preparation meeting. And part of our mission trip preparation, as uh, me and Dave Watson and Charles Gregoire and um, uh, Beth Watson and a few of the teenagers are going to Guatemala to support the DeStefanos in December, part of our training is to learn how to share the gospel. Um, so we practiced a gospel presentation. But then we each one went around and shared our testimony. And, um, you know, it's kind of awkward to share your testimony sometimes if, if you're not uh, used to it. And so each one of the boys and adults just went around and talked about how each of us, the circumstances that brought us to a place where we recognized our need. And a couple of the boys just said, oh, you know, I just don't have that interesting of a story. Um, you know, it's not some sort of dynamic thing where I can remember the day and the time and the minute and the hour and the heavens opened and there was a dramatic change. And I said, you know, don't, don't worry about that. Every story of redemption is beautiful. Every story of redemption points to the fact that a Savior wove together the circumstances and the situations of your heart and your life and your family and your upbringing and your situation. All of those things came together to bring you to a point where you knew you needed Jesus and you knew you needed forgiveness of sins. And, and I was encouraged to sit around and listen to their stories. It reminded me of a time in college when uh, in one particular week, I just said, I'm going to ask as many people every day just to tell me how they became a Christ follower. And maybe 20 or 30 people a day, I would just say, hey, um, uh, you know, we, we met uh, in class and, and I would love to hear, tell me how you became a believer. And one story after another, it was so encouraging for me to hear about people coming from broken homes and uh, broken families and addictions and abusive backgrounds and poor choices and regret and um, feeling like they had to live a moral, legalistic, righteous life, but knowing in their private life they fell short. And just listening to all the different varieties and backgrounds of people and their testimonies and how they came to faith in Christ from all these different situations was so encouraging to me. Imagine these 3,000 new believers in Acts chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 41. 3,000 new believers being added to the fellowship and, and contributing to this canvas of worship of all their stories and backgrounds and situations. Sometimes we lose sight of the individuality and the beauty and the saving of one soul when we read a number like this, 3,000 souls were added to their number, but, but they were each one individuals with a unique story of salvation. 
And each of them, some went back out into the world, right? Um, Pentecost was, uh, was one of those annual festivals where they had to come to Jerusalem. And, and when they came to Jerusalem, they were supposed to come from all over the Roman world and they were to bring their offerings. And so um, that's why in Acts 2, during um, Peter's sermon, when the Holy Spirit fell, it said that they were Cretans and Arabs and it just lists all the cities and places where they were from. And so they all were gathered in Jerusalem, but then they all heard the gospel and they responded to the gospel. And so many of those 3,000 who were saved were dispersed back out into the world. And as they were dispersed back out into the world, chances are good that in the future, the Apostle Paul or some missionary team would have come to that area and would have found already a gospel witness and a gospel outpost where they were. But many of those people flooded into the Jerusalem church. Many of these 3,000 who were saved, uh, we don't know the number, but they came into the Jerusalem church. And so we see in 242 through 47, a summary statement about what life was like for those brand new believers in the first church established by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It's a summary statement. And Luke is um, very intentional about giving us summary statements. You're going to turn pages here with me, and I want to show you a key theme because Luke is very careful to give us, starting in chapter 2 all the way through the end, he gives us these summary statements all throughout. Look at Acts 2.41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now skip over a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Acts 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. You start to see the progressive growth, and notice the language, the addition of men and women, the, uh, it's going to change language to from individuals to uh, souls, etc. Acts chapter six, verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The language has changed here. Now there are disciples being made. Not just believers. And now it's not just believers added, but you see in the rhythm of the early church, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. So they're doing that. They're not just adding believers to a church. They're now teaching and discipling so that when we get to Acts 6-7, the word of God is increasing. Now the number of disciples is multiplying. It's multiplying, and many of the priests are now becoming obedient. Now, don't gloss past that. Just a few years before Acts 6-7, it was the priests who were part of the trials of Jesus who voted to put Jesus on the cross. They would have been uh, opposed to the gospel, but now in Acts 6-7, now many of the priests are giving their life to Christ and becoming obedient to the faith. Skip over to Acts chapter 9, verse 31. 
after a great persecution and violence and martyrdom has taken place with Stephen and Saul. Now we have, after that, in 931, a period of peace. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. All right, so you have people added, then you have disciples multiplying, and then now you have the church multiplying. And it's not just in Jerusalem any longer, right? In Acts 1.8, he said, wait for the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes on you in power, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and in Galilee and to the ends of the world. So now we see the church multiplying outward from Jerusalem. And in, in this passage in 931, um, it's the church is multiplying in Galilee and in Samaria, as well as Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, in, skip over to Acts 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Skip over to Acts 16, 5. So the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. By this time, Paul has gone on his missionary journey and from city to city throughout the Roman world in modern day Turkey, Greece, other places, uh, they're starting new churches. And so this statement carries us far past Jerusalem, far past Antioch, and into the Roman world. And now the churches are being strengthened, and they are increasing in numbers daily. Skip over to Acts 19.10. We just have a few more of these. This is where we get the Ephesian revival. And in the Ephesian revival, Paul rents out the hall of Tyrannus and begins teaching daily. And Acts 19.10 says, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Asia, what we know of as Asia, the continent Asia, is not what they meant by that. This was a region uh, that would have made up modern-day Turkey. Um, it was a region, not a continent like we would think of it as a continent. But for two years, all the residents of this entire region heard the gospel and responded to it. Uh, Acts 19.20, same chapter. Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord continued to, in, continued to increase and prevailed mightily. Sometime around Acts chapter 20, Paul wrote to the Romans as he was planning to deliver aid to the Jerusalem church. And when he wrote to the Romans, uh, in Romans chapter 15, he says, Now since I no longer have any room for gospel work in these regions... And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped by you on my journey there. Um, if that's true, Paul had shared the gospel so much and the, the gospel had grown from this little group of disciples of 120 in the upper room to 3,000 being added to the point where it had so the gospel had so grown in the kingdom of God, the church being established in a matter of 30 or 40 years, 
Paul said, I need your help to get to Spain on the far end of the European continent. I need your help to get to Spain because there's no more work for me in this area. There's no more work for me in the rest of Europe. So now, in the Middle East, so now I need your help to get farther. That's the truth of the growth of the gospel. And then finally, if we look at Acts chapter 28, the last verse we'll read here uh, in this theme, Acts chapter 28, verses 30 through 31, we find Paul having been arrested in Jerusalem and then taken uh, eventually to Rome. We find him under house arrest. Um, and it says in Acts chapter 28, verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So we see throughout the book of Acts, the historian Luke is giving us these key summary statements. All right, got that? I probably... Um, mansplained that a lot and really beat that um, into you a little bit. But I wanted you to see this really clearly, that Luke's, uh, one of his major themes is to track the growth of the Jerusalem church from the day of Pentecost throughout the entire Roman world so that you can see within a matter of 30 years, Christianity had spread like wildfire uh, throughout the region. So let's turn back to Acts 2, 42 through 47. And we're going to look again at this summary statement, which is just a snapshot of the, the, the nascent church, the church that was just birthed. This snapshot of the church might have summarized a year Maybe just two years of that early Jerusalem church. And Luke wants us to see what life with the Holy Spirit was like in the new church, right? And if the Holy Spirit came and people began to speak in tongues and thousands of people were converted, then we wonder, would that continue in the early life of this church? And what we see here, we see insights into their rhythms and activities. So let's look back at verse 42. It says, the new believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to breaking of bread and prayer. So we get an insight into their devotion. Into their devotion. Sometimes you'll hear the word devotion or devotional used. Uh, some of you may even have a devotional book. Uh, it's a book that just describes what people do when they wake up and they have uh, some time with the Lord. Oftentimes they'll use a book called a devotional that guides them into spiritual growth. But it really, in this passage, describes their commitment. They were completely committed to a few things here. We learn that they were committed to the apostles' teaching. They were committed to fellowship. They were committed to praying together. And they were committed to breaking bread. So they were committed, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were the teachers. What were they teaching? Well, you remember, we went through um, Mark a few years ago. And, and in Mark... Jesus regularly taught them in parables. You can turn there if you want to, but in Mark chapter 4, in Mark chapter 4, uh, Jesus is teaching parables. And in verse 10, he says, when he was alone with his disciples, those around him, 
The twelve began to ask him about these parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is given in parables. In other words, Jesus taught in parables to the crowds. The large crowds would come to Jesus, and Jesus would teach them a parable, and the point of the parable, according to Mark chapter 4, was to leave the crowds with a question mark. What does that mean? Right? You think of Jesus teaching and people walking away with clarity, but really what happened is Jesus would teach the crowds, the crowds would gather, and, and he would leave them confused. They, would, they didn't understand. What does this mean? I don't understand. He would veil the truths of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And to his disciples, Mark 4.10 says, When he was alone with his disciples, the twelve then asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. The moio is the word secret. He, Jesus revealed the secrets of the kingdom of God to the followers of Christ, to his immediate disciples and to the apostles. So what were the apostles teaching? They were revealing those secrets. They were teaching and explaining the parables and the content of Jesus's message. Jesus was a preacher and he preached multiple messages. But whenever Jesus came to the crowds, he would preach, repent and believe. Repent and believe. But he would also teach these parables that were insider information only to those who had already believed. And in Mark 4, 33 through 34, it says, after Jesus has taught many more parables, it says, with many more such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to the crowds without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So what were the apostles teaching? They were revealing to the new believers, to those within the newly formed Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, all the messages that Jesus taught them. Can you imagine having those who sat at Jesus' feet, who walked with him on these long walks, who went with him on these long excursions, who heard him on the Sermon on the Mount through these long teaching times, and who walked with him into these different regions and saw him heal people and then explain things in private. All these long nights and fireside talks and uh, traveling messages that Jesus would teach. All those things the apostles began to unpack. They had con content for years, and the listeners, the new people within the body of Christ, those who were baptized on the day of Pentecost, they began um, to listen and to absorb the apostles' teaching. And they were devoted to it. What else were they devoted to? They were also devoted to fellowship. We learn in verse 42, they were devoted to fellowship. Fellowship is just simply gathering together in informal ways. Fellowship could also mean gathering together in a place like we're doing now. We learn later in verse 46 that they were gathering day by day in the temple as well as in each other's homes. And so there was a devotion, a commitment to just being together. A commitment to just being together. Hebrews tells us uh, not to forsake the gathering of Christians. That we should be in a rhythm where we're fully committed to gathering together on the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week, Sunday. We should be fully committed to gathering together with other believers as a regular rhythm and part of our routine with believers. We should be committed to it, devoted to it. Sometimes showing up is all that's necessary. 
Uh, I learned this lesson a, a couple of ways. I worked, uh, I, I had uh, dropped out of college without a degree, and uh, I, I got one of those jobs that teaches you the value of a degree. You know what I'm talking about? I got one of those uh, easy entry jobs. Uh, it was at a place called Snappy Car Rental. <laughs> <laughs> and I would work at Snappy Car Rental, and uh, my job at the beginning was just to clean the, the rental cars that came in as a, as a 21-year-old, and, and I made like $18,000 a year cleaning rental cars. Um, it was such a terrible job for me. I didn't love it at all. It's not like a passion of mine to clean rental cars, but it became something that I just had to do to you know, pay back school loans and other things. And, but what I found out was that if I just kind of hung around and showed up, um, within a month or so, I got promoted from the guy who cleans the car to the guy who drives the car to the car wash, right? And then the new guy that was hired, his job was to vacuum out and to wipe down the inside of the car, but, but I got to drive the cars to the car wash. And then um, the longer I was there, I, I, I became, um, you know, the guy who delivers the rental cars and then eventually became um, handling shifts on a Saturday morning. What I found out that after a year or so is that sometimes all you have to do is just show up and buy attrition, right? You can get a promotion and, um, you know, that's what happened to me at UPS when I was working in the late night shift uh, through seminary and um, fast forward in 2005 just showing up sometimes meant a promotion just being faithful and coming to work and just regularly doing your job good things happened as I was just faithful to the task at hand and that taught me that devotion to showing up there's a benefit to it listen that's a simple way to describe you may not realize the benefit to just coming to church every week to just committing to a small group despite the sacrifice and then just showing up every single week. Maybe that value is lost on you. Maybe it's been a long time since you've been really regular at church, but, but if you've ever gone a period in your life without the regular fellowship of believers, if you've ever stopped attending church and stopped attending small group and stopped uh, fostering relationships with other Christ followers, it gets dry out there. Your relationships tend to leave you um, uh, not as life-giving or joy-producing or truth-telling. It gets dry and your relationship with God will dry up. And your uh, intimacy with the Father will dry up. And your, your love for the saints will dry up. That's one of the examples of the end times when Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy, um, in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves. Proverbs in the series that we went through this summer said, those who isolate themselves are stupid, right? It's very crass language. But, but there is truth to the fact that just being devoted to fellowship to being devoted to Christian relationship and gathering, even if it's not an, an enormously encouraging, um, amazing time together, sometimes just the nature of being together, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. These new believers were devoted to this. They were also devoted to praying together. They were devoted to praying together. When they gathered together, they weren't just hanging out. It was um, a time together where they, a need would be um, surfaced, and they would say, let's just pray about that. Why don't we just take a minute and pray about that? One of the things I love the most when I come into this room on Sunday mornings is from time to time seeing a, a, a brother in Christ take another brother into a side area and just saying a prayer together. Or going downstairs and seeing people praying in a different corner. Or walking in on a small group that's meeting here and, and seeing people praying. That sort of devotion, they were committed to it. Just to praying with each other. 
Uh, verse 43 says that as they continued in these rhythms, awe would come upon every soul. I don't want to lose sight of this because oftentimes we can lose sight of awe, a sense of genuine wonder at how incredible God is and how amazing his activity is in our life. And so as they were gathering together in fellowship and unearthing these stories of what God had done in their personal life through the week or through their time together, it left everybody with a sense of wonder. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing what God did? Listen to how he answered this prayer and listen to how he provided for this need or listen to how he got me out of this jam or listen to all the... This became a sense of reporting and as they were devoted to these things, awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit, wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. And I want to just touch on this for a second, because Jesus had previously authorized the disciples to give them authority to work miracles. As he sent them out two by two, crowds of 72, he would send them out and he would give them authority to do miracles. And, And I believe one of the purposes of miracles is to establish and give credence to the Word of God. When the Word of God is preached, Jesus would often say, your sins are forgiven, and so that you can know that I have the authority to forgive sins, let me also say to you, rise, take up your mat, and walk, and he would heal somebody. So a miracle accompanied the establishment of truth. Now many people come from a point of view that says that miracles have ceased. That's a viewpoint called cessationism. Cessationism is the idea that the Holy Spirit does not do any miracles any longer uh, in the world, and that those Uh, miracles, that time of miraculous works ceased with the death of the original apostles. I am not a cessationist. Uh, I have a different viewpoint. It doesn't mean that uh, I'm from a charismatic point where I look for miracles everywhere. But what I see in the the book of Acts and in the rest of the New Testament is that miracles often accompany the establishment of the word of God in an area where it has not been established before. So, for example, today we might hear missionary stories of the work of the gospel penetrating and being established in places. The church is growing the fastest right now in Iraq, uh, in the Middle East, in places uh, where the gospel and the word of God um, has not taken root before. And so while the word of God is being established, we might hear examples, credible examples of miracles that accompany the establishment of the word. I understand miracles might continue today in that vein where the word of God has not been established and the Holy Spirit is establishing the word through miraculous things. If you've ever seen a video called ETAO, it's about a group of missionaries going into South America and systematically teaching the word of God. And as they are teaching the word of God, little miracles are happening along the way until the point where in Acts chapter four, the believers are gathered together and as they're praying, the place is shaken. In the video of of these missionaries um, sharing the gospel with these uh, new believers in South America, when they read that passage on the video, you see an earthquake happening at the moment that they read the place where they were meeting was shaken. That's an example of what I'm trying to tell you is that I think miracles continue in a way that establish the word of God. But as the word of God is established, the, the, training wheels of miracles tend to go away. 
Now that the Word of God is here, now it's our role just to follow and, and be obedient to the revealed Word of God that was established in some of these ways. And so we see the apostles establishing the Word of God and miracles accompanying that. Uh, and so, anyway, that's an aside about cessationism. Um, you might have a different uh, opinion about the gifts of the Spirit and the work of miracles and things like that. That's okay. That's one of those areas that we can debate, and I may change my mind, and you may change your mind. It's just kind of one of those open areas. But the, there is no passage that says, and thus miracles cease to exist forever with the death of the apostles. So it's kind of one of those things that people read between the lines a little bit. It's open to interpretation. Verse 44, And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds as any had need. This is an example of believers sharing with other believers. Some people would look to a passage like this and see communism in some way. Um, we don't see communism here where, um, where all the wealth is gathered to one place and then redistributed on an equal place. What we see is believers sharing their possessions, selling their possessions, not hoarding things, but sharing with those who had need. As a need came up, they would sell a possession and give those things away. They were, in, in essence, taking Jesus' words seriously. Jesus had taught the apostles to give without expecting anything in return. If somebody asks for your cloak, he says, give them your cloak, right? Uh, if somebody asks, and give them your tunic as well. He told them to give and to give secretly and that God would reward those who give secretly. Give to those who ask of you. Give generously. He told the rich young ruler, sell all your possessions and give to the poor and then come follow me. There was a real sense in which our faith should have very, very practical value. That if somebody within this congregation has a need and you have something, you don't value your possession above your brother or sister in Christ who has a need. A willingness to be generous, to share. Listen, we talk about um, um, this sort of idealistic way that it happens. It happens through our church, uh, through congregational giving, where we have a percentage of all of the monies that we receive on a monthly basis earmarked for benevolence, and we distribute those benevolence funds often. Uh, maybe it's providing uh, food or shelter for someone who's homeless, or maybe it's helping a member of the church with a bill or something along those lines, or gas. Um, we do some of those things regularly, but one of my favorite ways that I see this happening in our congregation is someone will say to me, hey, I want you to give this to so-and-so. The Lord put their, them on my heart, and I have this extra, and I want you to... This is my favorite job, because oftentimes the person with a need will come to me, and they'll say, hey, will you pray for me? I have this financial need and I don't know how it's going to come from and, and as they're asking for prayer I have the answer to prayer in their pocket in my pocket and to be able to be that bridge of sharing generously within the congregation is one of the most beautiful things that I see in our church the greatest thing you can do with your finances and resources is furthering the gospel furthering the gospel brings the greatest return on investment You've heard about ROI. You, you um, maybe uh, give money toward, a, toward an asset or something that's going to pay you back in the future. The greatest ROI you can ever get is investing your money into gospel purposes and kingdom resources. It's the greatest return on investment ever. Why? Why do I say that? Because in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, Jesus said, when you give secretly, your Father who sees what is given in secret, will reward you. 
That is a promise from the Father who sees what you give to give you a return on your kingdom investment. Verse 46 says, Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we see in here a daily routine. We see an insight into the early church's rhythm. They gathered in the temple because the temple was the place, uh, Solomon's colonnade or another part of the temple complex. There was a place where thousands of people could gather. And so the believers in Christ, the new church, just found a corner of the temple complex and they could gather in these large groups to hear a word of encouragement, to pray together, to, to disperse needs, to give generously, to encourage each other, to hear the apostles' teaching. All of that was taking place in the public large group gathering, but it was also happening home to home. They were meeting with each other in home, uh, in, in various people's homes in these sort of small groups. And coincidentally, that's the same routine that we have here in this congregation. We meet together in corporate groups like this, and then we have small groups that meet in homes and in Sunday school classes and in midweek fellowships. And it's that same rhythm that we see right here in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 through 47. It says that when they got together, they broke bread. And breaking bread was synonymous with the Lord's Supper. They took the Lord's Supper together. That's what the breaking of bread meant. Remember in Matthew 13, I mean, sorry, in John 13, when Jesus got the disciples together in the upper room, and it says he broke bread uh, on the way to Emmaus when the disciples got there. When they got to um, the place where they were going, Jesus acted like he was going to go further. And they said, no, come in. And they urged him and he came in. And it says when he broke the bread, um, they knew who it was. This breaking of bread was synonymous with observing the Lord's Supper. And observing the Lord's Supper places gospel centrality at the heart of the new church. When they broke bread, they remembered Jesus's body that was broken. And by remembering the body that was broken, the cross was ever before them. Listen, this was not some sort of thing where the cross was the entry point to Christianity, and then eventually you will mature past the gospel message of salvation by the cross. The cross was ever before them, and for us, it's ever before them. Jesus commanded us to do only two ordinances when we gather together, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so when we observe the Lord's Supper, we are literally saying Jesus's body, like this bread is broken, Jesus's body was broken for your sins. So when we observe that, it places the gospel always before us in this way. And so we can see from the early church, immediately the gospel wasn't something they moved past, it was something that was always central to who they were. And then we just see the results. They were glad. They were generous. They were worshipful. They enjoyed favor with people, the community, which, by the way, wasn't going to last. There was going to be a time when the crowds were going to turn on them. A great persecution is about to break out. Um, the world will only tolerate the church so much. We may have favor as long as we're doing good works within the community, but it's the gospel message that's scandalous and that the world will not tolerate. They will not tolerate us saying that sin is sin and that Jesus is the only way to heaven. So there's only a matter of time when favor is not experienced by the church because of the words of Jesus. It is a divisive gospel message. And to those who are being saved by it, it is the good news of the gospel. But to those who are perishing, uh, it's a curse. 
So how can we apply this? What does this mean for us? How, what do you do with Acts 2, 42 through 47 personally? Let me just give you a couple of insights as I close. This is a description of ordinary Christianity. This is a description of just regular Christianity. And in our culture, oftentimes we see people who constantly push out to the edges in search of the extraordinary and the miraculous and the mysterious. And what this is, is the regular rhythm and routine, the daily diet of the gospel fellowship of believers. There are words, uh, Michael Horton wrote an article in 2013 or 2014 from Ligonier Ministries, and he used these words to describe all these new churches and movements that were taking place. Churches uh, and a book called Radical, Epic, Revolutionary, Transformative, Impactful, Life-Changing, Extreme, On the Edge, Awesome, Emergent, Alternative, I might even add the word Progressive, Innovative, On the Edge, Explosive, Breakthrough, Whole New Level. We see all these adjectives that push from a place of ordinariness into these sort of extreme places where we want to see these miraculous things. I had a, a fellowship with a believer once who constantly asked God for miracles and was constantly searching for the dead to be raised and for tongues to be validated and for shriveled limbs to be healed. And, and everything this person did was in search of God to do extraordinary things. And listen, God can do extraordinary things, but when we, when we um, discount the ordinary, regular pattern in which God works, for the extraordinary, we, we live an unbalanced Christian life. Have you ever seen one of those skateboard videos when somebody's going down a hill and they get that speed wobble? You know what I mean? The speed wobble where the, the, the truck's on the skateboard. Uh, I'm going back to sixth grade. I think that's the right term. Jeff, is that right? Alex, is that right? This is a truck, right? All right, I know a little bit. But when they get that speed wobble, it's when the trucks are out of balance and it starts to wobble and it, it goes extreme. And, and I can't watch those videos, by the way. To see somebody get hurt on a skateboard going down a hill brings me personal pain. But the speed wobble happens in Christianity when people forsake the middle, balanced, routine, ordinary ways that the Spirit moves for these extreme sort of experiences of the Holy Spirit and Christianity. What you have here is absolutely ordinary. They were devoted to Scripture. They were devoted to praying. They were devoted to gathering together every single week with believers. What in that is extreme and extraordinary? If we were to start a church and, 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 and call it extreme and, and we forsook these sort of things for an emotional, worshipful experience where everybody got goosebumps and the lights were on and the fog machines were going and the band was working us up, that does not satisfy long term. What satisfies is the ordinariness of Christianity. Gradual, Ordinary, slow growth by the ordinary means of grace. Prayer, fellowship, the Word of God, worship, generosity, being together. This is the rhythm of ordinariness. What we also see here is a list of verbs. They were devoted, they broke bread, they prayed, um, they believed, they were selling, they were distributing, they were attending, they were breaking bread, they were receiving with gratitude, they were praising God. There are actions in this passage. 
And there were also things that they did, but there were also things that the Holy Spirit did. The Holy Spirit brought awe. The Holy Spirit worked miracles. The Holy Spirit added to their number day by day. There are things that God does, and there are things that we do. Don't get the order wrong. They believed on Jesus. They received salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the list of verbs that we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47 were a result The maxim for us is that right belief produces right actions. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Believing well leads to acting well. And you don't get those two wrong. The the disciples didn't work to earn their salvation. They heard the gospel and they believed. And as a result, actions flowed from their right belief. We don't earn our salvation through works. Works flow as a result of salvation. And then finally, the last thing I might say here is that we see here a mixture, a blend of human activity and the Holy Spirit's activity. There is no room for passive passivity in the Christian life. There's no room for passivity. They devoted themselves. Listen to the human activity. They devoted themselves to the word. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to togetherness, to breaking bread. They devoted themselves to selling and distributing. There was physical, literal, daily activity from the Christ followers. There were action verbs of their activity. And then the Holy Spirit's activity was there. Awe came upon every soul. Wonders and signs were done. They had favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number. There is this holy and mysterious balance between our actions and spiritual growth, what you do, and then what God does. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you catch that? You work it out while the Holy Spirit works in you. You work, the Holy Spirit works. In Christ, I'm not talking about before you become a believer, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by works, but after we give our life to Christ, once we're Christ followers, now we have a responsibility toward action-oriented verbs to work out our salvation. Paul to the Philippian believers, work out your salvation. It's God who works in you. So the people work out their salvation while God is working in them. You might say, well, what's the split? Right? Do I show up with like 1% power and 99% activity is supplied by the Holy Spirit? Is it 50-50? Is it 30-70? We don't know. Don't get caught up in those details. I think the bigger principle for you to apply here is that you should not be passive in your relationship with God or your participation within the congregation and the activity of the church. You shouldn't be passive. There are things for you to do. There are people that God has called you to serve and to be served by. Look around. Really look around the room. Look downstairs, look upstairs, look, look all around and you will see that there is no room for passivity. There are people that you can serve in Jesus' name that will benefit them and bless them and strengthen them and encourage them and vice versa. You'll be blessed and benefited as you engage in these activities. The actions listed here are active. 
So with that in mind, uh, my prayer is that we would be devoted in the same way in the ordinary means of grace for growth in Christ that we see here. These aren't necessarily extraordinary things. They're just routines and habits. Habits that lead to godliness and to the evidence of the work of God in your life. Maybe it's time for us to be more devoted. Maybe that's your takeaway for today. Lord, where am I lacking in devotion? Where am I isolating myself? Where am I pulling away from the body of Christ where I should press in in, uh, in deeper commitment? However it is that the Holy Spirit is prompting you uh, to put this word into practice, it's my prayer that you would build your house on that foundation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word here today. We thank you for the incredible ordinariness of the actions of the believers here in the new church. They were just committed to the meat and potatoes of Christianity, to the basic rhythms of gathering together, praying together, worshiping together, hearing your word together. It's my prayer that that would be evident in this congregation as well. A basic devotion to the basic things that each of us may grow in our Christ-likeness through that simple application. Thank you for your word today. We pray that you will use it to challenge us and to change us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.